How's this for a perfect light, Amy? You know? I'm just kind of, do you prefer this? I, I, I apologize for those of you who might suffer from migraines. Or should we follow this light? I actually hung this on my rearview mirror the other day and drove down the road with it just a little ways. Or do you prefer this one? This morning we're going to be talking about, we're in a series where we're talking about following the perfect light. And I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah this morning. And even though our focus verse is really John eight twelve through this entire series, we're going to take a look at one of the Christmas prophecies that come to us in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. And if you take your Bible and just go right to the middle and open it, you're going to be really close to the book of Isaiah. If you come to Psalms and Proverbs or the Song of Solomon, then you need to go to the right just a little bit. If you come to the book of Jeremiah or any other prophet, I want you to go back to the left. Isaiah chapter 11, we're going to focus on some of the words that this man has shared with us a long, long time ago. During the 60-year ministry of Isaiah, he, like many of the prophets before him, had served the Lord under what I would call both ungodly and godly rulers. And one of these wicked rulers was a king that we've come to know as Ahaz. Everybody say Ahaz. He was such an evil king that he'd even offered sacrifices to pagan gods of surrounding nations. But then when I think about it, so did King Solomon, when he blatantly ignored God's commands and chose to pursue the desires of his own heart. And I got to thinking about that, how the Bible contrasts the wicked and the ungodly. And I thought about Solomon, and then I thought about Ahaz, and then I thought about the sinfulness in my own life. And I thought maybe we could contemplate and take more seriously the restorative powers of the perfect light if we, if we really took more seriously, each in our own lives, the prophet's words from Jeremiah where he said this. He said, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. It is desperately wicked. And if you're anything like me, I'm surprised at how bad I can really be. Then scripture says, who really knows how bad the human heart is? And then it says, but I, the Lord, search all things and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their own actions deserve. Jeremiah 9 verses, or 19 verses 9 through 10. But the good news, everybody say good news. The good news in all of this is that the truth that illustrates the magnanimous grace of God's sovereignty in the midst of the darkness is found here. It's in the midst of this darkened reign of an ungodly king that God chooses to foretell one of the greatest prophecies through a servant Isaiah that has ever been given to humanity. Ahaz was a king who had turned away from the Lord and his administration becomes for us, if you will, a shadow that represents all of humankind. And in short, it's this. God says, because of your wickedness, Ahab, Ahaz, I will judge you. But also, because of the promise that I've made to your father David, I'm going to continue to extend my divine superintendence and raise up from the stump of Jesse, who was David's father, a shoot or a branch that will grow to provide a kingdom of justice and righteousness to my people. And so God's promise promises restoration. And so God did that. He chose and raised up Isaiah as one of his major prophets and gave him a clear promise that one day that God himself would take on human form and that one day a young virgin, not a maiden, would supernaturally become pregnant and give birth to a child who would be called Jesus, the Son of God. 
This passage in Isaiah chapter 11 is, is really a foretelling of the mercy and the grace, God's love that it would be poured out in the human race, a race not so unlike both Ahaz and Solomon. People like us who, when left to our own ways, are prone to wonder and hate both God and our neighbor and given some circumstances, even ourselves. So this message of the light of the world foretold, it comes to us against the background of Judah's sin and rejection of all that was deemed holy and righteous and true. And there's always the good news, despite the dark warnings of judgment that Isaiah was commissioned to bear, the promise of Emmanuel, the promise of God with us, shines through the ages as a bright and perfect light of eternal hope that finds fulfillment And the promise foretold. The promise said that one day would most surely come when to us a child would be born. When to us a son would be given. And the time would come when the government would rest upon his shoulders. And his name would be called Wonderful and Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And to the increase of the government of peace there would be no end. For on the throne of David and over his kingdom, his root would grow to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness and truth from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. You see, in Isaiah, we not only meet the Emmanuel, the one God promised would come to bring everlasting righteousness, but we're also reminded that God is sovereign and that he will accomplish all that he purposes and that nothing, everybody say nothing, and that nothing can hold back his mighty hand from what he set forth and put in motion to accomplish. The light foretold concludes with this promise. It says that in the end, the powers of this world are going to be lopped off like branches in the fall when you trim everything before winter comes. And the burden is going to be lifted from the shoulders of God's people. And in the end, history will turn to destiny. And the plans and promises of the sovereign Lord will be perfectly fulfilled in every way. In short, that's my summary of the text. I could just say amen and give the benediction. But I want us to take just a closer look at these 11 verses, and I want to do it in three parts. The first one will be verses 1 through 2, and I call it the light promised. So follow along with me. I'm going to be reading from a little different version, so just follow along, verses 1 and 2. It says, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding and the Spirit of counsel and might. And the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You know, the house of David was a, was a lofty tree. It was, it was a tier. The Israelites were a tier above the rest of people until they turned their hearts to themselves and followed their own ways. And then the judgments of God brought them down because of their disobedience. But God always keeps his promises. And the light foretold said that the stump of Jesse, Jesse was David's father, from that would spring forth a branch, and branch is a symbol that's used in the Old Testament as a symbol representing the promise of the Messiah. And it said God promised that he would put his own spirit in him and fill him with wisdom and fill him with understanding and fill him with counsel and power and knowledge and that he would live in complete harmony with the will and the character of God. 800 years later, after this prophecy was given, the prophecy foretold came true. Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph. 
in a small town called Bethlehem. We can probably think of a couple of other areas where he was anointed. Remember when Jesus was just a boy? probably 11, 10, 11 years old, and they came in. The family had came to the city for religious festivals, and when they left, they forgot Jesus. And on their way back home, they they realized that he wasn't with them, and they began to look amongst all the travelers. They traveled in caravans. They looked amongst all the other family members, and they couldn't find Jesus. And when they went back in, where did they find him? In the temple. He was just a young boy, and he, he was anointed with wisdom and counsel and the knowledge of the Lord and understanding. And the Bible says that he was fielding questions from the wisest minds of his time as a boy. And then probably the one most prominent that most of us remember right off the bat is right after Jesus was baptized, he just comes from the wilderness, he implements his Galilean ministry, he walks into a synagogue, he picks up and unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and he says, Behold, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You know, all lights are not equal. And every one of us here this morning are following the illumination of some light in our lives. In verses 3 through 5, we see the purpose of the light. Follow along. In verse 3 it says, He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of His word and one breath from His mouth He will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. Now, Some of us here this morning, I realize, we may find it hard We may even find it uncomfortable to think of God as a righteous judge, but in a crowd this size, I think it's pretty safe bet to think that a number of us have experienced the inequities of our judicial system. I mean, it's not perfect. I think it's the best, but it's not perfect. And many of us, in a myriad of ways, have probably been barred with ideas and rationalizations that seek to establish one set of laws over and against the other's. When I read the Bible and I look at justice the way that's carried out in real life, even in the real life of the Israelites, I have to confess that my sense of justice, our sense of justice, the sense of justice of which my life has been a part, has really become warped at best. The principal function of a ruler is to judge and to reign with an authority that's preserved and protected by integrity. When God acts in judgment, he sees perfectly into the heart of every person. When God acts in judgment, he sees perfectly into the heart of every issue. When God acts in judgment, he sees and knows everything on every side. His judgments are righteous and just and perfect in all of his ways. Therefore, his light, given for us, illumines the perfect path for us to follow. We call ourselves a lot of things. We call ourselves disciples. We call ourselves believers. We call ourselves followers. We call ourselves, it's the big C word. What is it? Christians. And it means little Christs. That our lives are to be a reflection, an embodiment of 
the AC cord that's plugged into the power or the, or the batteries that's plugged into us that allows the life of Christ to be shown through us. I love the picture in verse 5. Isaiah is attempting to reassure us about God's judgments, that they're righteous and just and true. And he says, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness a sash about his waist. I don't know if you know this or not, but this is Dan Gable country. And I was a wrestler and a state wrestler, and I I just really enjoyed it. And Dan Gable was kind of a, man, he was a big dude when I was in in high school. Uh, Undefeated. And so when I, when I see uh, metaphors like this in the Bible that talk about wrestling, they're, they're always interesting to me, and, and you have a lot of that in Scripture. And it says that in biblical times, wrestlers wore belts around their waist. And the object of the match was for each opponent to seek to wrestle and tear the other's belt off, and that's how you determined who was the winner. And in this passage of Scripture, the promise foretold now unveils the, the purpose of the perfect light. It says that this figure, this belted man, steps in, and it doesn't just represent any wrestler. Instead, it it represents specifically the one who was identified to be the Messiah. There was only one person who was both ready and willing to take on and both conquer and deliver us from the human dilemma of sin in which each of us find ourselves in. Jesus enters the picture, becomes the champion wrestler, tears off the belt of sin and death, and frees us from the law. This is the promise that's been foretold. This is the purpose and the power behind the promise. So Jesus, the Messiah, steps in with a new belt, a belt that's woven from a threefold cord of righteousness and faithfulness and truth and secures for us a victory over sin that only he alone could win. And he extends the invitation to us all. To allow the reign of his kingdom of faithfulness and righteousness and truth to free us. When I look over a group like this, I know that a number of us have gone through difficult times in life. Times where you've been deeply disappointed. Deeply hurt. There's a number of us here that to whom you can look Because we're living proof of the purpose of the power of Christ. We're living proof of the promise of the light foretold. That God's righteousness, faithfulness, and truth prevails in our lives because he loves us. God knows everything that you're going through this morning. There's not a situation that he's not fully aware of on every side. Remember his judgments are what? Righteous and just and true. The third part of this verse is verses 6 through 9. And I call it the light restored. Because it deals with the full restoration of all things. And it says in verse 6 that, And that day the wolf and the lamb will live together, and the leopard will lay down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and the little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together, and the lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, 
So the earth will be filled with the people who know the Lord. And that day the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. And the nations will rally to him. And the land where he lives will be a glorious place. And in that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring back the remnant of his people. Those who remain in Assyria and northern Egypt and southern Egypt and Ethiopia and Elam and Babylonia and Hamath and the other distant coastlands. When I read this passage of Scripture, all of it, but especially this last section, this is one of the most famous and moving passages of all of Scripture to me. Because it says that after the judgment of God, when Jesus has won his victory, that righteousness will be restored to everything that he's created. Every right will be, every wrong will be made right. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf with the lion, and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The lion will eat straw like an ox, and the infant will play near the hole of a cobra, and neither of them will destroy on God's holy mountain, for the earth will be filled, the Bible says, with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everything lost in Eden will be completely restored, and it'll be better. The Bible says the promises that we live on today are enacted on a better covenant, It'll be better the second time around. You know, our focus in this series is on light. But not just any old light. The perfect light. You know, last week, Kent shared with us that, that all lights are not equal. And it's true. All light illumines. Some of it's brighter than others. Some of it functions to a different rhythm than others. Some are different colors. Some has a wide band. Some can be narrowly focused. There are probably only two categories of light in the world. The first one's natural light. But you have to have natural eyes to see what's illumined in the natural world. And everybody that's born into this world can see the things that God has created. We can perceive with our natural eyes. And when we're born into this world, we're born with the ability to see and to perceive physical light. And it's through this that we learn the handiwork of our Creator. The Bible says, forever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. It says through everything that God has made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities and his eternal power and divine nature so that they are without excuse for not knowing God. You might think you have a good argument for not believing in God, but God's word says that we're without excuse. And as good as physical light is, it's, there's a different kind of light. A light so important that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, chose to voluntarily come to be the light of the world for us. The perfect light made flesh. Both to declare and impart to people just like us the truth that only this light can reveal. That Jesus Christ alone is God and the light of the world. And here's the thing about this light. You don't have to have natural eyes to see it. It's a spiritual illumination. 
It's a divine revelation that comes from knowing the King of kings and Lord of lords and not some mere natural understanding of the man that history calls Jesus of Nazareth. There's a difference between just knowing about Jesus versus knowing Jesus as Savior and King of kings and Lord of lords. When Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, he was making an unbelievably bold statement that unashamedly declares exclusively that he alone is the light of the world and that all other lights, they're not equal, lead to darkness. It's true. Not all lights are created equal. Which one is illuminating the pathway in front of you? When we take a candle into a room, it dispels darkness. Likewise, the light of Christ has to be taken into the darkness of sin that engulfs the hearts and the lives of those who are not following him. We probably all know people like that. But it also needs to be invited to penetrate the darkened areas of the hearts of those of us who call ourselves Christians. Because I know if I'm honest in my own life, there have been times when I've been walking an illumined path, a path that was lit up, but my batteries were pretty low. Sometimes I've continued on paths... I'm not sure there was any light in my path unless it was being reflected from somebody else who was coming alongside of me and sharing their light with me. Our earth would change very rapidly if we no longer had the light of the sun. And like trees and plants that always move towards the light, so should we as believers follow the perfect light. And allow the revelation of God, the love of God that reaches out to each of us to reach out to him just like the canopy of trees reaches out to the sun. To follow spiritual things. To follow truth. To follow righteousness. And to let justice rule in our life. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, we delight ourselves in you knowing that you are the light of the world. And that you called us to walk in your light and to not walk in darkness. So, Father, we invite you to to move in each and every one of our lives in ways that lead us in truth and righteousness for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.